I wanted to talk to my friends about these issues. My friends were also members of the anti-fascist movement. And that was the very first time that I was called a capitalist pig. Just for asking questions, yes, I was promoting some sort of capitalist propaganda. You leave in 2012. What have you noticed that's changed with Antifa from then to today? Well, you know something, Antifa today is far more dangerous than anything that I was part of. We heard multiple times under Trump's administration calling Antifa a terrorist organization. Putting them in that category makes it a little bit more difficult for them, but does it really slow them down? Who is funding Antifa today? They're not being paid to go stir up violence. They're doing it out of their own hearts. Do they look up to somebody like an AOC or Elhan Omar or folks like that or no? Surprisingly, no. They are not left enough for them. <laughs> Even AOC is a capitalist. <laughs> who do they look at as absolute enemies? Like who is the enemy the state number one? Their true enemy is our system of government and our society as a whole. My guest today is Gabriel Nadales, who used to be a part of Antifa until he decided to change his mind. This was around 2011. He wrote a book called Behind the Black Mask, My Time as an Antifa Activist. Uh, Gabriel, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, so first things first, how were you recruited into Antifa back in the days? So, you know, when I was part of the anti-fascist movement, uh, nobody really recruited me. I was already a liberal activist for about maybe about a year and a year and a half. And I knew a little bit about Antifa uh, due to the music that I used to listen to. A lot of people don't know this, but Antifa actually comes from the anarcho-punk and like the, the punk subculture, at least in the United States uh, in the 1980s. So listening to this music and kind of following their history, I learned about Antifa. And in 2011, was the first time I put on the black mask and it was to uh, fight against the National Socialist Movement. Now the National Socialist Movement is a neo-Nazi group, pretty, pretty spiteful people. But since I knew a little bit about Antifa, I decided to dress it all in black and just kind of show up and see what was going on. And what did you um, learn? Well, you know, uh, once I was there, I, I linked up with a lot of different um, uh, anarchists and members of Antifa at the time, and they're the ones who invited me over to more radical events. I mean, I attended several different uh, anarchist book fairs in Southern California and Los Angeles and Orange County. I went into this rabbit hole of anarchist subculture that I had only read about before. Now, I think the question is, you said you already were a liberal activist mm -hmm. before going to Antifa. How did you become a liberal activist? Well, you know, um, I'm a Mexican immigrant. Uh, I came to the United States, specifically California, in 2002 when I was nine years old. And my household wasn't all that political. Sometimes they would be mentioning of what was going on. But I remember watching uh, Univision and uh, Telemundo. And these two shows, they... I mean, their 90s news segment would always spell doom out for everybody. And I remember that uh, they they would make it seem like Republicans and like people who loved America were my enemy simply because they were out or because they were out to get the Hispanic people. I mean, that's the, the feeling that I got from watching these shows. So I grew up with this uh, in mind. And then in middle school and high school, I had multiple different teachers who told me that I needed to do something. Well, not just specifically me, but to the class that we needed to be the voice of change. And then uh, among them, there was also different teachers who would, uh, instead of teaching them, teaching us their class or their, their uh, subjects, would start berating us for being conservative or if we held conservative beliefs. 
Is that your bio, biology teacher you're referencing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, he wasn't the only one, but there is a biology teacher that I had. And I remember that um, he used to yell at us. And just I, There was this one lecture, it was about evolution. And he was saying how uh, people who were believed in God and didn't believe in evolution were stupid and specifically pointing it to us. And I remember he used to say that, like, of course, his children weren't stupid because he raised them to be atheists, you know. So I, I it was a lot of different seeds were planting and planted in me by several different teachers, as well as the 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 Spanish media that made me want to be active and, and really care about politics. And the first time that I did something that uh, really, really political was around 2006, I think. And I remember that um, there was this Republican uh, from Wisconsin, I forget his name, I write about him in my book, who introduced a bill to make border crossings into the country uh, criminal, illegal border crossings rather, um, while obviously crossing into the border, uh, into America illegally is illegal, it's not criminal. But what this bill would have done was to criminalize anyone and throw them in prison or, or jail or whatever for coming here illegally as opposed to just deporting them. Well. I remember in, in Univision and Telemundo, it was the beginning of a new genocide and internment camps and all these uh, these big things that were happening all throughout the country. And I remember a lot of my different classmates were mad about this and we were marching around uh, our school. This is middle school at this point. I mean, that's basically the first time that I did anything overtly political. But from there, I, I did things for anti-war things against Bush, as well as... Um, I also, uh, in 2009, to protest Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was the governor, Republican governor of California, you know, I marched with, this, with the teachers unions. That was kind of like what it was at the time, just protests, you know, against the U.S. Army, just a bunch of less small little little things. What, 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 what were some of the phrases? We have a big uh, Mexican community, specifically Mexican community that follows the content here. What were some of the phrases you grew up with Listening to Mexican media or Latino media, obviously Jorge Ramos is, is a, represents <laughs> a big Latino community. But what were some of the phrases you would hear? You know, what what are they going to do to you? You said the genocide. What were some of the phrases you heard, specifically yeah. in Spanish? In Spanish, ah, oh, gosh, I it's kind of difficult to to kind of remember. I just kind of remember like the sense of 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 these different things. It's fine if I speak Spanish in your show. Sure, you okay. can say what they said. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember specifically about Jorge Ramos. Like he would uh, hit President Bush very hard about not caring enough about Latinos and and just making it seem like he was like this bad guy because he didn't want to pass immigration reform. Uh, I don't remember like any specific things. It's called one of those things that I kind of just yeah made to stick, but it stuck with you, where yeah. it influenced you. Okay, so at what point when you went into uh, Antifa and you started kind of a, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, being part of the group, at what point what did you see that turned you off to say I can't align myself with this? Sure. So about 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 a year and a half into um, me being part of the movement, uh, it was my senior year of high school. And there was this economics teacher who uh, introduced me to free market economics, you know, as part of the, the course requirements. And soon I learned about Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell. And I mean, these are great economic minds. And, and I think that now, but at the time I remember that I, I mean, I didn't like them. I, I disagree with them. So I wanted to refute the free market and these, these beliefs. And by doing so, I wanted to talk to my friends about these issues. Well, my friends were also members of the anti-fascist movement. Well, 
I always say that for being an anarchist at the time, that was the very first time that I was called the capitalist pig just for asking questions. Because as soon as I started having the, some of these conversations with them, they started seeing me as the enemy, as I was promoting some sort of capitalist propaganda. There's just one conversation that I remember having about the role of government. And, you know, I was an anarchist, so I didn't believe in government. But I thought if there's a government out there that would exist, it should be small, but only so it can enforce the rights of people and nothing else, nothing else. And then this other so-called anarchist, he said, well, you know, I don't believe in government either, but uh, if a government is to exist, it should be there to help everyone. And that just became illogical to me. I thought, I thought, well, you're saying you don't want government, but if there is a government, it should be the biggest possible uh, 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 creature that you can possibly create. Because if a government is big enough to give you something, it's big enough to take everything away. And that just didn't make sense. So after constant conversations with a lot of these leftist activists, I decided that I really wanted to reach out to the conservative side and see what they were saying, because I felt like I wasn't getting the true picture or from all my left-wing friends. Now, that's that's in 2011. Uh, 2011, 2012. 2000, so in 2011, 2012, you're part of the group. You leave in 2012. You're now, I believe, 27 years old. When you went into the group nine years ago, 26, 27 years old, nine years ago, you're a teen, 16, 17 years old, 18 years old. What have you noticed that's changed with Antifa from then in 2011 to today? Well, you know something, Antifa today is far more dangerous than anything that I was part of. And I mean, there's this book but written by a leftist activist, um, and it's called the, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. It was written in 2017 or published in 2017. And on the back of the book, there's this gentleman named Murray from Baltimore who um, he's a self-proclaimed Antifa activist. And it says the reason you fight them with letters and, and making phone calls is so you don't have to fight them with fists. The reason you fight them with fists is so you don't have to fight them with knives. The reason you fight them with knives is so you don't have to fight them with guns and with guns so you don't have to fight them with tanks. Now, a lot of people see that this is uh, think that this is a form of anticipatory self-defense that can be boiled down to the phrase of like, don't mess with me and I won't mess with you. But that language is actually trying to say, you better sit down and shut up or we are gonna make you by any means necessary. But with this quote, we can actually kind of break down uh, Antifa activism, if you will, into different stages. The first stage is being intimidation and some destruction of property, but then it quickly escalates to force violence and then to deadly force until you get the final stage, which is all out warfare. When Antifa in America, at least in America, has been in different cycles of this. And when I was in the in the 1990s, we definitely saw a lot of that uh, violence. And in the, the late 2000s and kind of when I was part of it, we were kind of in the first stage again, which is kind of intimidation, kind of yelling um, at people. I remember, I mean, I, I broke in a few windows as well as uh, uh, trying to intimidate a few people. But uh, I got to say this. Um, yesterday, I was actually at, um, at uh, in Washington, D.C., and I decided to uh, put on the black mask again and kind of infiltrate Antifa. And I saw very key differences between when I was part of the movement. First of all, they're open about- And by the way, when you're saying yesterday, you mean November 3rd election. November 3rd election. Yeah, yeah. it's very important because when they see this, November 3rd is the day that everybody's getting to, going through the election. So go ahead, you were saying in DC? Sure, so on, on election night, uh, I was actually in DC and I decided to put on a black mask and just kind of see what was going on. Uh, I, I, I wasn't really sure what I was gonna find, but I knew that for a fact that Antifa was gonna be organizing. First of all, 
it is far bigger than everything, anything I remember seeing. The biggest things that I was a part of was the Occupy protest. And that came from people from all Southern California. And while those were incredibly big, bigger than yesterday, not everybody was part of Antifa. There was a lot of left-wing activists as well as some uh, free market capitalists who were um, angry at the banks. You know, So it wasn't just a left-wing movement, although it, it vastly was, but at the very least, it wasn't all Antifa. Well, yesterday it was like close to 200 people dressed in the black block. And it's kind of funny because they were, at first they were saying like, oh, like no violence, like, you know, don't trash the city. This is, we shouldn't have to do that. Um, but it's interesting because as soon as we started marching within minutes, all of a sudden that went out the window. I mean, they started threatening journalists who were trying to take pictures. And also, I believe I wasn't present at this, but I, I just heard a few a few minutes ago that um, there was this gentleman who got uh, stabbed or at least slashed in, in, in his uh, in his stomach. I mean, they, at first they were claiming that it was going to be some sort of peaceful march. But of course, Antifa is not about peaceful protests. It is about shutting things down as uh, using their words. So you dressed up as an Antifa. Did they talk to you and did they, did anybody recognize you or no one recognized you? No, thankfully not. Cause I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to be recognized in that rally, but I made sure to keep my, um, uh, my mask at all times. Um, I actually found some pictures, um, uh, online for some of the news outlets. Uh, but anyways, you, you cannot recognize me, <laughs> but I did talk to a few different people. I think the most notable thing to one of the most notable things to, to point out though, is that the media, I'm very disappointed in the media. They were basically taking marching orders from Antifa. I remember back in my day when I was part of the Occupy stuff and as well as uh, uh, some of the anti-neo-Nazi uh, rallies that I that I was a part of. Um, you know, the media was there. Obviously, we didn't want to take pictures of us because, you know, that would reveal our identities. But we would just kind of turn around and just kind of avoid like the photographers. Well, this time, this Antifa was trying to use umbrellas to block cameras and, and not only do that, but actually push some of the, the reporters. On top of that, the reason I'm dis disappointed in the media is because I know for a fact if we had done that back in the day, the media would have just kind of walked away and then tried to take a picture. But this time, a lot of the media was actually listening to them as if they were part of the movement as well. And unfortunately, I think that speaks volumes to a lot of journalists nowadays. What do you mean they, by that? What, what, unpack them when you're saying listening to them as if they're part of the movement. What do you yeah. mean listening to them? Yeah. So, for example, there was this guy who's like, don't take pictures, um, uh, you know, like that, that can only endanger us. And this journalist apologized. Like, I'm sorry, like I didn't think of that. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, your point is to just report the facts uh, and just take pictures of what's going on, not try to conceal the identities of these people who are are a part of this movement that are trying to What organization violence. was that person part of, that that journalist? I, I don't know. I just know that he had a, a press thing here. Um, um, uh, I I didn't recognize any of the outlets. Every time that I would see it, I would just see the, the, the word press on top. I do know that there was this gentleman, um, Elijah Schaefer, who is from Blaze TV. I didn't know that at the time, but uh, I later found out because I saw some of the angles he was taking the pictures of me or whatever. And he was one of the ones who uh, reporters who was being threatened with, uh, you know, he was actually being a good reporter. He was being threatened and he would kind of walk away and try to get a different angle. But there was other reporters who just were taking marching orders from Antifa. Yeah, I saw some of the videos, both in D.C. and L.A., specifically last night with Antifa. And it wasn't looking good uh, uh, in both areas. It seems like... Um... You know, they're both, uh, uh, you know, creating more momentum, obviously it depends on who gets elected and a lot's on the line right now. I'm trying to mm -hmm. find out what happens next. 
But, uh, you know, question I got for you, and obviously you've heard this many, many times before with who funds Antifa. And that answer to that question could change within time because Antifa is a different organization today than 2011. Who is funding Antifa today? So I get this question a lot. And a lot of people want me to say that it's George Soros that's funding Antifa. But, and they, <laughs> it's kind of funny because then uh, if you kind of like Google my name around in some of the Antifa Twitter circles, they'll, they'll kind of mock it saying like, oh, I work for George Soros. He's not on the pay stub, you know, kind of, uh, kind of mocking me a little bit. Well, I can tell you that George Soros did not fund me when I was part of the movement and, and there was really nobody who was funding me. And we were all kind of self-funded. We would do quote unquote, like little fundraiser gigs or shows, music shows to, to fundraise for our supplies as well as we, a lot of us had jobs. And I think that reveals a, a danger because it reveals that there's people out there who genuinely hate America. They're not being paid to go stir up violence. They're doing it out of their own hearts. That being said, I mean, Antifa is much bigger than anything that I was a part of. I mean, some of the collectives are are small that, that I was a part of are, are incredibly tiny when you look at what's everything that's going on around the country. And I'm very curious to know who is funding the Torch Anti-Fascist Network. This was actually created in 2013. So it was about a year after I left. And it was founded by nine different Antifa chapters, Portland Antifa, um, what are they called? The Philly Antifa, uh, the Rocky Mountain Antifa, and there's a few others I can't remember. There was nine original founding chapters. Now, this is an actual traditional organization. They actually have an annual conference that's a two-day conference. And the first day, the delegates of these nine chapters, 10 now since Sacramento Antifa joined, joined the fold, um, and they send delegates to the first day. And then the second day, they have a little bit of more wide open to the public, not really to the public, but more of the uh, wider Antifa chapters abroad. Now that takes a lot of money. I'm not sure who's funding that, but uh, it'd be great if we can get to the bottom of that. How do you find that out? I mean, that's, can't somebody like yourself who's been a part of that to be able to infiltrate and find out who's funding that? No, so it's actually really difficult because um, if, if I was still part of the movement and still part of like the Los Angeles, like anti-fascist network, I know for a fact that I would have never made it to the first day. So I may have gotten to in, in accepted it the Got second it. day, but they definitely keep it nice. And, and, and uh, it's, it's a very close secret. So what does um, it take to get in there? What does it take to be one of them? So uh, a lot of people, I'll tell you specifically how I, what I did yesterday, which is actually similar to, uh, I basically did what I did several years ago yesterday. I basically showed up and I got them to say yes to me to something. I pretended that my hat or whatever, my beanie was messed up and I, I, I tapped someone in life and I told them, hey, cover me. Like I need to fix myself. And then you have three people who are like covering me or whatever. And that gave me an excuse to talk to them and actually say like, hey, so like what's going on? Like what's the plan? What are we doing here? And um Back in the day, if I had gotten into, if I really wanted to be into the movement, I would have tried to get involved with, or in contact with some of the, the the key leaders and key activists, as I did back in 2011. But this time, obviously, I just wanted to gain their trust, so they didn't see me as some an outsider who was just kind of there by himself. Um, I didn't get any of their phone numbers, but I'm sure that I could have gotten connected with some of the key organizers or more of the the serious organizers if I had asked. Yeah, I'd be curious to know who are the leaders behind it, the people that have the influence, because through that, you could find out 
who's yeah. really funding it. But you know, in in every uh, uh, you can you can ask somebody who's got a certain religion, political beliefs. You ask them who their hero is. You can learn a lot about them. Who is the hero or heroes of the Antifa community? So it varies. I remember when I was uh, again when I was a part of the movement, there was people who liked Che Guevara and who thought that he was like the, the epitome of anti-fascism uh, revolutionary tactics. There's people who also uh, took uh, who liked the what is his name? El Chapo. Sabatista. Sabatista. There we go. <laughs> Uh, Sabatistas, and you know they, they really enjoyed them. I can tell you that no one's looking up to the true anti-fascists of uh, General uh, Eisenhower or <laughs> you know people like that. They're always looking for the people who are who are revolutionaries and fighting the capitalist system. Um, How about and, modern day modern day people that are alive? Modern day people that are alive. I mean, um, I can't really uh, give any specific examples. I know that back in 2014, some of the uh, uh, the chapters. Uh, some of the more radical left, they were looking specifically to this woman who um, who fled to Cuba after killing a police officer. And she's actually, I believe, I think it might have been in Northern California. I can't remember. Uh, in 2014, they were trying to name a building after her at maybe UC Berkeley. And I can't remember. I know it was in Northern California. Um, and I mean, she's she's wanted by the FBI. She's one of the most wanted people. And she's living in Cuba. And the radical left is worshiping her because she killed a police officer. And I mean, this is the kind of people that really they look up to people who are true, quote unquote, true revolutionaries who are willing to take that step and kill innocent people or innocent police officers. Is that Asada Shakur? I think that might be it. So, OK, so those are some of the names they look at as heroes. And who do they look at as absolute enemies? Like who is the enemy, the state number one? You know, anybody who is opposed to them is suddenly the enemy. But back in uh, uh, back in my day, it wasn't. It was they actually really despised uh, Obama, and they thought that Obama wasn't liberal or leftist enough to do it. Because a lot of people have this misconception that Antifa is against President Trump or just against Republicans. You know, because this tends to be more on the left side of politics. But what people really need to understand Antifa is that their true enemy is our system of government and our society as a whole, because they despise the, uh, they, they despise capitalism. They have this, this wrong idea that by destroying capitalism, all of a sudden you're gonna have gender equality and racial equality and everything's gonna be nice and dandy. When as we've seen around the world in several countries, those places that don't have a capitalist system, more of a Marxist or socialist system, they're actually the most oppressive governments in which uh, they're closer to slavery. I mean, for example, in China right now we have, um, I forget the name uh, of the, the ethnic group, the Mongolians, I believe, they're basically being put in, in, in concentration camps. And that's what you get with the socialist system. Do they look up to somebody like an AOC or Elhan Omar or folks like that or no? Surprisingly, no. They are not left enough for them <laughs> because um, it's kind of funny. And this is um, as a conservative activist, I've gotten an opportunity to travel to a lot of different college campuses, specifically at UC Berkeley. Wow. Right outside uh, their college campus, there's this bookstore called Revolution Books. And I remember seeing a, a flyer for one of their events saying how AOC's Green New Deal was just a new capitalist uh, uh, plan to uh, secure power. And they were criticizing her for being a capitalist. 
This is how far some of these Antifa and radical leftists are. Even AOC is a capitalist to them. <laughs> so what is their ultimate vision? What are you they know, trying to accomplish? Obviously, their stated mission is to destroy fascism. But by destroying fascism, they really just mean, and I can't stress this enough. I, I feel sometimes like I'm, I'm just repeating myself. But when they say fascism, they mean American society and also just the capitalist system. As a matter of fact, there's in my book, I, I, I quote this uh, this Antifa chapter on Twitter that they say the, the, the fight against fascism will only be won when the capitalist system is smashed. And I mean, that's truly what they want. They they have this wrongful idea that capitalism and, and fascism are the, the, the same system when they're completely opposites. Yeah, I watched this documentary that was just released a couple of days ago by RT Documentary. I don't know if you've seen it or not. No. The title says Antifa BLM, Bogaloo Boys, Why Armed Protesters Are Preparing for Civil War in America. This is two days ago. And he's interviewing somebody who is with Antifa and BLM. And he says, what's your real outcome? He says, we want to make America great again, like how it was pre-Christopher Columbus. We got to get rid of everybody to start it the way we want to create it. Is that how far out they are with their vision? Uh, it doesn't surprise me. I haven't watched the documentary, but that doesn't surprise me at all because they have this preconceived notion that all of a sudden that Columbus brought war to the Americas as if the native tribes weren't fighting with one another, then they had different alliances. I can tell you this much, the Aztecs, I'm a descendant of the Aztecs and everybody hated the Aztecs. They were terrorizing people. They were, they were cannibals. They were fighting wars against all, everybody else. And I mean, they have this preconceived, this believe this mistaken belief that capitalism is the root of all evil that it, it is fascism when you really have to look at human culture or rather uh the way humans interact with one another unfortunately the human human humans are kind of suck oftentimes there's war but it's not the system itself as a matter of fact if you look throughout history capitalist systems are the ones who are going to war the least because war is so expensive that's a good point um, now, how do you deal with radicals like this? You know, when you're dealing with radicals like this, can you reason with them? Can you put them in a room and say, guys, let's try to figure out a solution here. Where are you at? Is there any way to reason with folks from BLM and Antifa? You know something in my book, Behind the Black Mask, I, I make the argument that we should be talking to people like, cause these people there, I think that they're mistaken. They, I don't think they're too, too far gone. That being said, it's really hard to reason with someone who wants to do you harm. And I understand that. So my basic argument is if there's Antifa activists, quote unquote activists out there who terrorize people, they need to be thrown in prison. Like, you know, you just like any other criminal would be. That being said, in order for us to change the the minds of these people is not necessarily to go after them, but kind of attack against uh, institutions who are promoting this type of ideologies. I've been a conservative activist for eight years, and I can tell you that so many college campuses out there provide ideological cover for Antifa. There's professors who I like to call Antifa light that promote a dangerous us versus them mentality. And they start indoctrinating their students into hating conservatives, into hating Republicans. How? Which, um, so a lot of times there, there'll be like professors who will uh, stand in front of the classroom and they'll say, oh, voting for Trump is an act of genocide or uh, what is another one? Uh, 
there's another professor in, gosh, in the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Whitewater, the University of Wisconsin, Whitewater, who is a former Antifa activist. He's, he wrote another book on Antifa and he calls Antifa a form of self-defense. And he, they continually lie to their students that Antifa somehow some sort of group or movement that should be praised, when in fact they're the ones starting a chaos and destruction all throughout the, the country. I mean, um, and I mean, these are not just incidents here and there. Time and time again, uh, I, I read stories where professors are continually indoctrinating their students. And in, in my book, I I label a lot of, or I uh, list a lot of different examples of this. I mean, in Colorado State University, uh, yeah, the Colorado State University, there's a professor who said that uh, it's top, we it's time we stop taking the high road and I'm ready to punch uh, my political opponents in the neck being conservatives. You know, there's a lot of these professors. So in order for us to really change the culture, we should really be going after taking back the college campus by, by really through doing activism and showing liberal students that there is an alternative, a peaceful alternative to the radical leftist violence. So this is election time, obviously, you know, last night, you know, November 3rd, results didn't come out and they're both going to sue and they're going to be in court for some time, whether it's going to be this Friday, next Friday, a month, 60 days, no one knows what's going to happen. Doesn't look like it's going to be a very peaceful uh, transition or no transition. It's just going to be issues trying to recount everybody, whatever state Trump loses, he's going to want to recount and whatever states they lose, they're going to want to recount. Which one do you think has the potential of creating havoc with riots and protesting if Trump wins or if Biden wins and why? I think whoever wins, we're going to see violence. And I'll give you my two scenarios. Say, for example, right now, President Trump gets the election. All of a sudden, all these radical leftists are going to say that the election is illegitimate and they're going to start plotting to try to take down the president, just like we saw in 2016, where they were trying to disrupt the, the his inauguration by trying to use uh, um, locks and, and chains to lock the, the D.C. metro. I mean, that, that's an act of terrorism. And they were trying to do that. Luckily, the FBI got involved and they kind of they, they stopped that. But they're going to we're going to see that very soon. But. At the very least, President Trump will actually take action against Antifa. So eventually we're going to see this kind of die down a little bit because a lot of them are going to go to jail. And rightfully, unfortunately, Joe Biden will not take the same route. I mean, he's the person who called Antifa just an idea. And he's soon going to realize that that idea is also against him because they're not against Donald Trump. They're not his allies. They're here to try to destroy American society. And I can't stress that enough. And if the problem, though, is if President, hopefully not, a President Biden would actually incite the ire of the, the radical left, because every time something happens where there's a, a case of questionable police tactics or, you know, sometimes things taken out of context. I, I mean, just a few days ago, we saw something in, in Pennsylvania, uh, rather a couple of weeks ago in which um, it seemed like it was a completely justified shooting by the police. And all of a sudden, everybody started rioting. So even in cases like that, a president, and hopefully not, but a President Biden would blame America. And all these liberals who are on the fence with Antifa, they would start seeing, well, if Antifa truly is systematically racist, then we have to take down America. So he will only spark, uh, uh, allow more liberals to join the radical left. 
Um, very interesting perspective to know that either way, I think the biggest thing is to know that Antifa is not left, it's not right, it's not middle, it's so far left that even an AOC is not on their camp or AOC is seen as a capitalist. That's absolutely mind-boggling to be thinking about that. <laughs> now, here's a question. Would you say the same about BLM or BLM is slightly different than Antifa? So BLM is definitely different. I, I will say that there's likely a lot of overlap, but Black Lives Matter is still a Marxist organization. But um, the interesting thing is that they actually use a different tactics. I should actually explain the two different tactics. Uh, Antifa uses something that's known as propaganda by the deed, which is invented by French anarchists. And propaganda by the deed is a political tactic in which you enact political violence against your opponents in order to inspire others to take up arms, uh, kind of like a call to arms, kind of, if you will. And you see this time and time again. Every time, uh, for example, in in Portland, they would say, come on, we need more. We're getting away with it. We're taking down the police. We need more help. That's propaganda by the deed. Well, the Black Lives Matter movement uses a different tactic known as the mass line. The mass line was invented by Mao Zedong, and it is the reason why China today is a communist country. The purpose of the mass line is to infiltrate honest movements and inject them with a dose of Marxism. So everything that uh, is wrong in the world is because of the, is the fault of capitalism. And Black Lives Matter is supposed to be a movement to stop police brutality. Okay. Well, when you look at their objectives it, up until very recently, right before the election, it was to destroy the, the nuclear family. Well, that's a Marxist belief. And that's what they're doing. They're trying to sugarcoat Marxist beliefs into pal palatable statements that every American can swallow. And I mean, everybody, a, a few months ago, uh, founders of the Black Lives Matter movement said, oh, like, you know, we have an ideological framework. We're trained organizers. We're trained Marxists. And there was a lot of conservatives who rightfully said, ah, see, we told you they're actually Marxists. But a lot of people missed the phrase right before that. We're trained organizers. Well, trained in what? They're trained to organize under the mass line. So while there is a lot of, uh, they do use different tactics though, there is a lot of overlap because both of them are radical leftist activists. And it, does, it would not surprise me if a lot of the leaders from like uh, the Black Lives Matter movement also put on the black mask from time to time, even though at the ground level, there are a lot of Black Lives Matter protesters who they don't understand that they belong to a movement that is a radical leftist movement that is not seeking to end police brutality, but to end the capitalist system as a whole. Are you noticing this tension create an opposition? Because you got a couple other groups coming out on the complete opposite side, Boogaloo Boys, uh, which is led by a, you know, 22, 23 year old former Marine and Patriot Prayer. Are you seeing the opposition also create a group like uh, to oppose them? Yeah, and I actually argue that it's actually pretty dangerous because uh, every time that I hear some of the some of the things that the chants that they say, they say, "Oh, it's time to take back our streets from Antifa," and uh, it could, it's one thing that Antifa is actually creating chaos, but at the same time, I think it's dangerous for private groups to try to meet Antifa on the streets. Because what happens when, say, I don't know, the Boogal Boys show up and they beat up Antifa? Antifa doesn't go away they go back home and then they recruit more people. And what happens when Antifa comes back even stronger and they beat up the Boogaloo Boys? Well, all of a sudden that's a call to action for them. And then you just have a cycle of violence in which uh, both groups feed on one another. Um, and ultimately uh, we have to put pressure on our governmental institutions of the police and, and elected officials to crack down on Antifa because private action against Antifa will only make things worse. 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens here and and what can be done to calm the situation down. Obviously, you know, we heard multiple times under Trump's administration calling Antifa a terrorist organization, which uh, putting them in that category causes uh, havoc for them and makes it a little bit more difficult for them. But does it really slow them down? I'm not quite sure. So long term, what do you foresee taking place to slow down organizations such as BLM and Antifa? Are they here for here to stay long term no matter what? Well, interestingly enough, uh, other countries do categorize Antifa as a domestic terrorist group. From, for example, Germany, they actually come out with a, a, full, a full manual on Antifa. But that, that being said, I think that for the foreseeable future, the Black Lives Matter movement will have a lot of a strong presence because they have successfully deceived countless Americans into believing that they're here fighting for black lives, which is something that, you know, it's a note with the cost. Luckily, I think that Antifa is actually, um, will eventually lose power. Because let me give you an example. When Antifa was first introduced to the, to the main stage, it was in 2015, when you saw them attacking Trump supporters and, and trying to take down President Trump. And you had so many left-wing outlets saying that they are the good guys. For example, CNN's Camel Bell, he interviewed a current member of Antifa uh, in 2017. And he's, uh, as she pulled out brass knuckles and knives, they were both laughing, uh, you know, like if it was all some big joke. In that same segment, uh, he also interviewed a, a few members of the Redneck Revolt anti-fascist group. Among them was this guy named Wilhelm Van Sprozen. Well, he called him and them, the group, the good guys. Well, a few months later, the good guy, Wilhelm Van Frozen, was the one who threw firebombs at an ICE facility and tried to burn down that, uh, the, that ICE uh, stronghold or whatever. And it was kind of just ignored by the media. But it, it, it's kind of interesting because you had so many journalists saying that they were the good guys. But as soon as the American people saw what Antifa was capable of, which is the destruction of countless American cities, all of a sudden the narrative changed. And that's when you had politicians no longer claim that Antifa was the good guys, but they said that it didn't even exist. Representative Jerry Nadler said, oh, it's just imaginary. And of course, uh, Vice President Joe Biden said, said that it was just an idea. And the reason the narrative changed is because that was hurting the Democratic Party and it was hurting Joe Biden because they didn't want to acknowledge the fact that just a couple of years before, the entire Democratic Party, with some notable exceptions, was backing Antifa because they believed that they were allies. The deeper you go into this, the deeper you can, uh, uh, there, there's more to learn about it. I, I'm just hoping they make a lot of progress to slow this down. And I, the part you said about the, you know, uh, about the two different groups that could potentially go against them, the Boogaloo Boys or the Patriot Prayer, and how much more tension that can create for them to go back and recruit more folks. That's a very good point. We'll see what's going to take place. Gabriel, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. If you want to order Gabriel's book, Behind the Black Mask, we're going to put the link below for you to order it. Again, Gabriel, thanks for your time. I appreciate it very much. Different perspective when you see it from somebody that used to be part of the group and to see how much it's come along from 2011, 2012 to today and what the vision is, who they get along with, their heroes. I want to hear your thoughts, comment below. And if you watched this interview and you enjoyed it, you may like my interview I had with Professor Richard Wolf, a you know, probably the top socialist in America with a lot of credibility. We had a very good banter to get. If you've never watched that, click over here to watch it. And if you're not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.